Hey guys, this is Josh Peak. I'm your host of The Josh Peak Show. You can find my website at www.joshpeak.com. Today is going to be a very special podcast. I think they all are, right? I say that every time, but this is with Corey DeAngelis, and um, I've been uh, chatting back and forth with him for months now, and I've really been watching him. We homeschool, and so here's a guy that... Um, has really hit the scene big. He's been on Fox Business. He's been on uh, a lot of the major networks. And he is executive director of Educational Freedom Institute, director of School Choice at Reason Foundation, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, um, and just an awesome guy, very knowledgeable. You better be on your toes when you're interviewing him. Um, so you're really, really going to like this this show because he gets into some of the issues that I like to talk about. Um, before we get into the show, there's, you know, I, I obviously, a lot of times I get emailed or text about what are some of the tools I use to grow my business, uh, the podcast, uh, the, my, my digital marketing agency, and that. So I'm going to showcase two products I use. Number one, you hear me talk about it all the time. Uh, if you're not building a list, an email list, you have to ask yourself why. That's the gold is, is your database. You have to develop a subscriber list, whether if it's for, you know, just communication or marketing your products or services. I use AWeber. You can find that on my resources page at joshpeak.com. I've used it for years. Some people use other uh, platforms, but they've always been good for me. The deliverability rate is phenomenal. And if it's not broke, why try to fix it? It's a phenomenal, phenomenal tool. AWeber. Uh, you can find that on my resources page at joshpeak.com. Also, I, I recorded this um, this podcast. It was the first time I've ever used it, uh, StreamYard. And StreamYard is really cool because it'll if you're broadcasting live, it will push to Facebook, any one of your pages or groups, LinkedIn, uh, Twitch, YouTube, which you can also find this on my YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com. Just look up Josh Peak or ask at Josh Peak. And uh, I love it. Great, great tool. But it, it simultaneously broadcasts to all these channels at the same time. So you're talking about creating content. You can create a tremendous amount of content uh, with this. So anyways, um, enjoy this interview with Corey DeAngelis. Again, you can find me at joshpeak.com, Instagram at joshpeak, Twitter at joshpeak. And then, of course, on Facebook, you just type in joshpeak. So um, enjoy the show, and I hope everything's going great with everybody. Thank you. Well, hey, everybody, this is Josh Peak uh, with the Josh Peak Show, and today I have Corey DeAngelis with me. Uh, I've, been, I've been wanting to um, have this interview for quite some time. As most people know, you know, we homeschool, and I'm a big proponent of school choice, and so I found Corey, uh, you know, online. I'd interviewed um, Carrie McDonald. I found Corey, and I thought, man, where have these people been, right? This, I mean, they're, and Corey... Um, just an introduction, you know, he's an executive director of, at the Educational Freedom Institute. Um, he is the director of School Choice at Reason Foundation and adjunct uh, scholar at the Cato Institute. And so, Corey, I'm excited to have you on. Hey, thank you so much for having me. This is uh, way overdue. It is. It is. Well, there's, like we were talking before, there's a lot going on right now. Um, 
you know, in Oklahoma, we're a little bit more conservative than most states. But um, so I think some schools are going to open up. But there are, you know, there is a lot of it is going to be um, uh, it's going to be virtual. And I think I don't think they have the, I don't think most people have the answers yet. I think we're, I think we're still waiting. I think they're going to wait to the last minute. Yeah, I mean, um, this is why so many families are scrambling to do the homeschooling thing or, or even micro schools with getting together with other families to kind of outsource that process of homeschooling and make it easier by grouping together uh, either that way or through a homeschool co-op because there's so much uncertainty with the public school system. But I will say in Oklahoma, um, it's one of the states that's actually taking a step in the right direction as far as their governor's order uh, regarding the CARES Act funding to take that existing federal funding and allow it to follow students to at least private schools, uh, which are uh, we've seen to be more likely to be willing to reopen than the public school sector. That isn't always the case, but uh, I mean, it's obvious that there's a different source of incentives in the private sector than the public sector in that the private school doesn't reopen. Uh, families can take their money elsewhere and leave, which could lead to a lot of private schools having to shut their doors for good. Uh, whereas in the public sector, you don't reopen, you still get taxpayer dollars regardless of the choices of, of the families and what the families actually want. So I think that's why we're seeing different pushes from the different sectors, private schools wanting to open their doors on average more, more so, and the public sector, you see the unions calling to, uh, to not reopen. Uh, you see all these weird demands across the country uh, tied to banning charter schools, banning private school voucher programs in order to reopen. We've seen LA, they've been calling to defund the police in order to reopen the schools and to call for Medicare for all and wealth tax. You know, we've seen um, that and then just calls for more money from the federal government as well, or else they're just, they're saying they're not going to reopen. And on the other hand, private schools are, are wanting to open and serve their customers because of that different uh, incentive structure. And I just want to be clear, that's not to say that private actors in the private sector are more moral or anything like that, or that the public sector is filled with, you know, greedy or evil people. It's not to say that at all. It's just a different set of incentives that are set up between those two sectors. So I just want to give Oklahoma kudos for being one of the few states that are actually doing the right thing and taking a step in the right direction as far as restructuring those CARES Act dollars. Yeah, Kevin Stitt's great. Uh, he's he's been he's done a very good job in terms of when it comes to, and I think he's more. It seems to me he's more school choice as well. Uh, we're seeing that. Um, you know, obviously Donald Trump has made it very clear he's school choice. Uh, I think it's. I think the choice is pretty clear. Um, so, well, let's talk about what's going. I mean, what you were talking about earlier. What's going on? In the, uh, the oh well, today's a good day to talk about more of what the unions are doing uh, when they're partnering up. Uh, they've actually built a coalition. If you go to demandsafeschools.org, you'll see what I'm talking about. You don't have to take my word for it. But today, August 3rd, is their National Day of Resistance. It's 10 teachers unions from big cities across the United States, including uh, uh, Boston, the state of Massachusetts overall, Milwaukee, Racine, Little Rock, Los Angeles, other big cities, including uh joining up with the Democratic Socialists of America, and they're calling for a lot of different things to reopen schools, but some of them that I'll list off really quickly is they want to ban standardized testing, which I'm not even a proponent of standardized testing myself. I think they probably do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. But when you couple that with the other demands, such as banning charter, new charter schools and banning 
voucher programs or, or private school choice initiatives. This is just this just seems like a way to avoid any form of accountability, either from the bottom up through choice or from the top down through these standardized tests, which I think the better way of true accountability is 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 the uh, vote allowing people to vote with their feet. But they're calling it to ban all of those things. Then also they want police free schools, which to me, again, I'm, I'm skeptical of having police in schools. I'd rather have private security so that you're less likely to get involved with the criminal justice system if you get in trouble at school. Um, but again, these families, these the, the decision of these things should be in the hands of families, not the teachers unions. Mm -hmm. And families should be able to vote with their feet to the schools that have the best safety policy for them. They're also calling for a quote unquote massive infusion of federal money. So. Sure. They want a lot more money. They want to ban their competition. They want to get the police out of schools, which doesn't seem to have a lot to do with uh, reopening schools safely. Uh, but, you know, their whole initiative is called Demand Safe Schools. And I will say I listed, you know, a few cities and there's 10 that are officially uh, organized with the Democratic Socialists of America. But there's also a much many more cities that I didn't that, that are not included in the original 10. Uh, and I tweeted about them and listed all of the cities, uh, tons of cities across the United States holding events that are related to this, including uh, where I grew up, San Antonio, Texas is doing mm -hmm. it as well. Uh, so I yeah, just go check that out. And then we've also seen the American Federation for Teachers recently announced they are the second largest teachers union in the United States. Uh, the largest one is the National Education Association. Um, which is also the largest labor union in, in the United States as well. But AFT, uh, 1.7 million members are now threatening what they call safety strikes. Again, if they don't get what they want, they're, they're threatening to go on strike when the school year starts. And that affects the entire nation because they have members all, all across the nation. And look, I don't have a problem with unions demanding whatever they want to demand. I don't have a problem with unions threatening strikes. What I do have a problem with is not being able to take your money elsewhere if they are going to do so. Like, for example, if Walmart employees decide they want to go on a strike, I I would be okay with them doing that. One, because it's in the private sector. But then two, it's because I know if they strike, I can shop elsewhere and they don't get to keep my money. But with, with the school system, it's completely backwards. If teachers go on strike or if the schools refuse to, to reopen, they still get to keep my money without providing me with education uh, educational services to to my students that are uh, what I deem to be adequate. So, uh, I mean, that's that's how I kind of discuss this and, and how ridiculous it is, is that, you know, when, when if a Walmart doesn't reopen, I can take my money elsewhere. If yeah. a school doesn't reopen, I should similarly be able to take my money elsewhere, but I can't. So we're seeing, I think it's related all of these problems on a national level of, of schools not wanting to reopen and and, and employees um, threatening to not go back to work because they get your money regardless. Yeah, and I, I had I had a post. I don't know if it was a meme or what. It was a post this last week uh, on Facebook, and I remember that it definitely struck a chord of teachers. I'm not. I am not against like public schooling, or I'm not against teachers or any of that. I'm. I am against. Uh, I'm not a big fan of unions. I'll just say that. Um, but it's not that I think the teachers have been hijacked. I think they're I, I believe their hands have been tied. I mean, there's no creativity anymore because they're told what I mean, what to teach this that, and the other. I think there's some great teachers out there that, you know, <laughs> should be allowed to teach and, and teach and, and have a little bit of flexibility and latitude. Um, but with that being said, um, I am for for school choice like you. Uh, we homeschool, and I think the money should go back to 
like you're saying the parents um you yeah, know. School, school choice would benefit teachers too because it gives the school system an incentive to spend the money wisely and when you have an incentive to spend that money that money wisely you spend it on the most important aspect of the educational system which is the teachers and we've seen that with about five or six studies that i know of on the topic that find when there's school choice competition comes into play, whether that, that is through private school choice mechanisms or charter school mechanisms, the schools start to allocate more dollars towards teacher salaries because they know that, well, if they don't allocate those dollars wisely, they're going to lose their customers. Mm -hmm. And that's how competition works, right? Competition benefits the yeah. consumers in the product market, but competition in the labor market also benefits employees, the teachers themselves. Um, you can think of the from an economics standpoint, you can think about the labor market in K through 12 education as a monopsony. Everybody knows that the K through 12 education system is a monopoly, which harms consumers, but it's also a monopsony, one big employer uh, in the system that the employees essentially have to take those costs and benefits that go along with that employer, which is the government run school system. That's bad, bad for employees and allowing for more choice, uh, uh, you know, benefits to teachers too. And I will say that just just to clarify, you're right that being pro school choice isn't anti public school. That's I mean, if, if you were to buy that argument, it's like saying that allowing customers to shop at Trader Joe's is anti Walmart. No, that's not the case at all. I, I may like shopping at Walmart, but I also may like allowing other people to shop elsewhere. That doesn't mean I'm anti Walmart. Right? right. That's just that's just, just the wrong way of thinking about it. Um, it's just being pro choice and pro family. And that choice for a lot of people will, would be the public school system. Uh, they may not want to switch or take their children elsewhere, but we should also allow other families to do that, uh, uh, to, to, to opt for the best solution for, for their children. And I want to say that being pro-teacher or, or even being skeptical, if you're being skeptical of teachers' unions does not mean that you're anti-teacher, that you're even skeptical of teachers themselves. I would say that the teachers' unions have been lobbying for policies overall that aren't benefiting individual teachers, but are benefiting the, the union leaders in that you look at, just look at the, the top line data from 1920, 1992 to 2014, Ben Scaffney from Kennesaw State University highlighted this, and I'm sure Josh, you know about this already, but for the listeners, real per pupil education expenditures over that period increased by 27%. And yeah. for people who don't know what real means, that's the same thing as inflation adjusted. They have increased by 27% in real inflation adjusted terms, but teacher salaries in real terms have dropped by 2%. And the reason for that is that we've just put more and more people into the school system and haven't spent the money wisely. It's gone towards administrative bloat. And uh, from a, a competitive standpoint and from a union leader standpoint, that's beneficial for them because having more people in the system increases union dues, whereas increasing teacher salaries does not increase union dues and putting more people into the system benefits the unions as well and that it gives them a bigger voting block and more political power. So there's a disconnect between the interests of individual teachers and the interests of the union leaders. So you can absolutely be skeptical of unions and union bosses and also be pro-individual teacher at the same time. And I would argue that school choice is the best way to benefit teachers. Yeah. Well, and we're, this, we're seeing that in Oklahoma too. We're seeing now, you have to go look at it, Google it, but uh, Epic, which is a is a charter school. I don't know if you've heard of Epic. It's a virtual charter, right? Um, it is. It's yeah. become the largest, um, it's become the largest in Oklahoma now, as far as uh, for students, it's become, a, I don't know if you call it a district or what, but it's the largest 
basically a school system in Oklahoma right now. Uh, there's just so many people that are that are, are are leaving the public school system and going towards Epic Charter. And of course, you've got the Tulsa. You got all kinds of media outlets that are against Epic. You know, they're trying to. It's like they don't want them to to migrate over. Uh, but that it, this kind of segues into what you've been talking a lot about. Um, and I've started to do some research, which is micro schools. And when you look at what a teacher can make there or a teacher can make at Epic. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy the money, the, the difference between a public school and say Epic or going to a micro school. Yeah, I don't know the individual salaries for Epic, but I will say that uh, charter schools have a stronger incentive to allocate the dollars to the families. But I also will at the same time note that across the country, I don't know the numbers in Oklahoma, but across the country, the charter schools typically get fewer dollars per child than the traditional public schools, which is a huge injustice that more people need to call out because uh, why should a family and a child be worth less because the traditional public school didn't work for them? Why should they lose their public education dollars, a fraction of those dollars, just because they want to switch to a public charter school, which is still a public school, uh, including, you know, uh, Epic Charter Schools are public schools in Oklahoma as well. So people should get the same amount of money regardless of the type of education that works best for them, even if that's a virtual education uh, families shouldn't lose that money. And from the most recent report that I've done on the topic, we found that about that the charter schools in the cities that we looked at got about 27% less funding on a per pupil basis than the traditional public schools. And so with the micro school concept, again, just to reiterate for the listeners, it's about five to 10 students getting together in a household. A lot of people, a lot of people in the homeschool community don't want to call this homeschooling because it's not in your own home. It's not you with your own mm -hmm. child. Uh, but it's kind of like uh, a, it's a home-based education, we can call it, I guess, in that five to 10 children get together in a household and you as a family, let's say I'm a single parent or I'm a low-income family that relies on those two, the, you know, two incomes and I can't make it work for whatever reason uh, with my schedule this year, I can outsource that process to another household, have my child get that one-on-one -on -one attention or not one-on-one, -on -one, but you know, a more personalized attention at least and have the more student-centered approach and uh, you know, uh, have you know, get a lot of the benefits of homeschooling, not all the benefits, but still allow me to go go back to work. Uh, you know, this fall that that would be. Would that have one school teacher, or or would it be a? It, it depends how you set it up. You can have a homeschool co-op type of a thing where you get five you know families together, for example, and you know I could do the math teaching. Josh, you could do the English one day, and so you can kind of. Uh, make it work that way, or you could have it like Prenda Micro Schools, uh, based in Arizona. I think they they they, they have uh, schools in other states as well. I don't know how many other states, but I do know they have schools in other states as well. But they're based in Arizona. Their model is that you have a one guide. They call them. They don't even call them teachers. It's a guide because uh, I think they understand that most learning occurs through student interest and students kind of seeking out things that they want to learn about and you can still have the guide there to to make sure that the student is on task uh, and, and to make sure that they're there to watch out for the safety of the children and to watch for questions that the children may have for clarification purposes um, but with Brenda most of the learning is through the student pursuing their interests um, and so that's that's the way Brenda does it. So you only need one guide. And I talked to their CEO, Kelly Smith, out of Prenda Microschools in Arizona. And he told me that about 60% of the revenues that come in go directly to the teachers. 
And when you look at the public school system, if you just look at the overall, you know, how much we spend, you know, over $15,000 per child in the public school system, about 25 you know, uh, students per classroom, and teachers make about you know, $60,000. I think about 15 to 20% uh, uh, of the public school expenditures go directly to the teachers. Where at Prenda, in the micro school setting, where you can cut out a lot of the bloat, you can allocate more of those dollars directly to the teacher. And I will say, um, Prenda already works with the school choice programs that they have out there in Arizona. They have things called education savings accounts. So most listeners yeah. are probably uh, familiar with vouchers where if you opt out of your public school, you get to take some of those education dollars in the form of a voucher to a private school of your choosing with an education savings account. A lot of those dollars or you know, a fraction of those dollars will go into something called an education savings account. And you can use those funds like, like you would with a voucher for uh, private school tuition and fees, but you could also use it for any other government approved education expenditure, including uh, going to a micro school or, or to offset homeschooling expenses. So we already have systems that are doing this. And I think that's the future of education to allow the money to follow the child and just do a quick, you know, multiplication there, you know, $115,000 per student. If you get 10 students in a household, that's, you can pull in $150,000 in revenues. Obviously not all of that would go to the teacher, but if you multiply that out by 60%, the teachers would be making more in that setting than they would in the public school system. And they'd have a, uh, a class size that is far smaller than what we see in the public school system. You have only have 10 students as opposed to the you know, 20 to 30 students that you're seeing in the public school system. So that, that again, just shows you that this can benefit this kind of, kind of set up by, you know, uh, getting money more directly to families and the teachers can benefit the families, obviously, but it benefits the teachers as well by giving them more autonomy, smaller class sizes and potentially higher salaries. If you can get those dollars to follow the child. And I will say another part of the national debate right now is we've seen a lot of outlets, including Washington Post twice already, Salon, Good Morning America, and a couple of other outlets. They keep pointing out that, hey, there's this cool thing going on. We're, they call them pandemic pods. It's essentially they're talking about families getting together to do the homeschooling thing uh, or micro schooling thing or, or homeschool co-op setup. And they're pointing out that this is cool and all, but this could lead to lead to inequities, they've argued, that it's going to be the most advantaged families that are doing this. I will argue that one, less advantaged families do have the means to be able to, to, to uh, you know, seek out these options as well, but it may not be economically feasible if you have to pay for a private tutor, which may cost a lot of money right now, and a lot of families may not be in the position to do so. And so all of these outlets are identifying a potential problem of inequities Per, you know, uh, expanding through microschooling in the current school system, but they're not seeing the obvious solution. And I don't know if it's willful, willful ignorance or if they're just not thinking the way that I think about the school system, that if the money followed the child, you'd allow less advantaged families to take advantage of these alternative options as well. Why would you, uh, you know, not see that as a, a, an obvious solution? If you gave low-income families $15,000 per child, they would have so many more options and access to these micro schools this fall. And that would be an equalizer in society to allow more families to, 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 to get these options as well. And be, before we move on to another topic, I just want to you know bring it back to the unions real quick and how the unions are actually making teachers look bad right now. I think you and I and everybody that is watching this can, can uh, understand that most teachers are, are 
excellent people doing the best they can for students, doing the best they can in the system that 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 they're stuck in right now. Uh, I always want to argue that it's the system that makes it as hard as possible for, for teachers to do a good job in the public school system. It's not the teachers themselves. It's not their motives. They want to do the right thing. But the teachers unions are not representing their views adequately. And you're seeing things like this, these groups that are these teachers unions from big cities grouping with the Democratic Socialists of America. Obviously, there's a lot of teachers. I would say the majority of teachers are not wanting to be affiliated with the Democratic Socialists of America. They want to identify as socialists themselves. There's a lot of conservative teachers in the K-12 education system that are that uh, I just want to point out that are not being adequately or accurately represented by these unions. And we see a lot of weird things going on just in the past couple of days. Yet yesterday, we saw the Milwaukee Teachers Association. They they were um, had a lot of their members on a live stream yesterday, and they posted this all over their Facebook, actually creating fake tombstones of third. They were saying, "Here's like a third grade child who died from, you know, uh, the virus and stuff." And what they're doing is they're protesting reopening by using fear mongering, and they're 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 getting to these tactics to where they're creating tombstones of, of children and, and, I saw that. and it just it just seems kind of low to go there and i think most yeah. teachers are seeing this and they're saying like i'm embarrassed for for you know i'm a teacher in this system i i don't i don't you know uh support this behavior i think it's you know beneath beneath the you know the teacher genius to be doing this and then we're seeing in arizona uh they have something called six days of action and i think today they're doing a march to the capitol i'm pretty i'm actually pretty 99% sure that today is the day that they're doing that because it aligns with these other uh, groups that are having this as their national days of resistance, but they're marching to the Capitol. And yesterday they told their members to write fake obituaries um, to the governor, Governor Doug Ducey in Arizona, again, to protest reopening. They also said, you know, if you don't want to do the obituary thing, here's an instruction manual of how to write an epitaph, you know, mm. trying try to do the they, they had templates for, for making tombstones in Arizona as well. They had templates for the obituaries. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of people were looking at this and saying, you know, this isn't, this isn't who, who I want to represent me, you know, well, as, as a timing, timing is weird. I mean, the, we're talking like in two weeks, you know, these kids are going back to school. Right. And, and, and still yet they're still having meetings on whether or not that's going to even happen or not. I mean, most of these parents are, they have no idea what's going to happen, but it, it does bring to another point. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, when you're saying the money goes back to the parents, that argument on some of my posts have been, well, that's dangerous because what if these parents spend it in a, 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 a you know, a reckless way? And, and what about the safety of these? Yeah. Kids? Yeah. Yeah. Like that's so reckless as compared to not reopening the schools and them still getting your money. I mean, well, how much worse can it be? Right. Um, mm -hmm. But then also these education savings account programs have safety mechanisms. Um, I, I tend to trust the parents to, on, on a whole to make better decisions than the bureaucrats in the education system. But the reality in practice, when these programs get passed, is the money goes to scholarship granting organizations that then gives it out to the families in these education savings accounts and they have safeguard mechanisms in place against fraud and if if let's say a family goes and buys a big screen tv that family can go to jail for spending the money fraudulently so that's a huge risk um, for a family to do so and look it has to be used on government approved education expenditures and i i would argue even without these safety mechanisms you know safeguard mechanisms in place which 
they are everywhere where we have these programs, I would argue the families do actually do a better job than the alternatives, which is the bureaucrats and the government run school system that waste money year after year and that want more money without even reopening the schools in person this fall. So that's that's my quick response to these arguments about, you know, not not spending the money wisely or um, uh, and then also, yeah, I mean, people are arguing about uh, safety, safety of the children in the household. Yeah. Come on, there's, uh, you know, the, the latest report on this was a long time ago, I will, I will admit, but it was in 2004 by the U.S. Department of Education who estimated that uh, about one in every 10 students will experience uh, sexual misconduct by the educators in the school system themselves by the time they graduate from high school. So we can't act like there isn't uh, dangerous stuff happening in the school system. This is a Department of Education report right now. You can also look at Choice Media. They have a website called sexualabuseinschools.org. This is happening uh, daily. They're updating these uh, the, these reports of, of crazy things happening in the school system with the educators themselves. And I just want to point out this is all this isn't all educators, but there are bad apples in the school system that a lot of that far too many students are subjected to. Whereas in the in the in the household, uh, they would they want to be around these uh, people who uh, you know uh, who are doing these things uh, you know uh, and I'm not again not saying that all educators are doing this but there are still bad apples in the system who are doing right. these and this doesn't include all of the abuse that that goes on with other students with the bullying and uh, you know the gang activity and drug activity uh, going on in the school system as well so the 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 students may experience some safety issues in the household and sometimes that that that's obvious that that's certainly going to happen but we can't act like it doesn't happen in the schools as well mm -hmm. um so we shouldn't make perfect the enemy of the good well I, and I, and I don't think that we should be making these um because some of the 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 po like the comments on on my post are like well, we got to get these kids back in school and and um they need to they need two meals and they need the, and i'm going this is becoming a daycare. I mean, this is becoming a deal where it, it's, it, you know, the government, I mean, you, it can't be when it comes to mind, it's like, we can't have the, the government taking care of us from cradle to grave, you know, to where it's well, it, and safe. We, we have to have this and that. And then, and then the next step is, is I mean, it's become a daycare. How many, I mean, at some point, when, when, are, when are the parents going to take responsibility? You know what I mean? Well, we shouldn't we shouldn't make policy prescriptions based on the exceptions rather than the rule. We shouldn't use extreme cases. I mean, we saw this with the uh, the attacks on homeschooling this earlier this year by a Harvard University's oh, Elizabeth yeah. Bartlett calling for a ban on the practice. She calls it a presumptive ban, but I would define it as a ban outright because she says even if you're deemed worthy to homeschool your children uh, in your own household, uh, she would still require those families who are deemed worthy by the bureaucrats or the elites in society to uh, send their children to the public school system for at least a couple of courses. I would call that an outright ban on homeschooling because I would define homeschooling as having, you know, 100%, uh, you know, uh, of that education happening in the household um, and through other community activities and not being forced to use the government run school system. Whereas Elizabeth Bartlett and her calls for a presumptive ban are actually, she's actually calling to force people to use the public school system, which yep. I think would be absolutely ridiculous. And look, when it comes to, uh, you know, families and the, and the daycare conversation is actually really interesting right now. I'm glad you brought it up because I think school closures right now um, 
are highlighting what a lot of us in the movement have known for a very long time, that one of the main benefits of the public school system is that child care service. I'm not saying that's the only benefit of the school system or the only benefit of, um, you know, uh, the education system overall. It, you know, children are obviously learning things um, as well. But when you look at the main backlash against the closures back in March, the first backlash was about where am I going to, you know, how am I going to work because I, I have to have a place to to watch my children. And it wasn't about, oh my goodness, my, my, my children aren't, aren't going to learn things right now. I mean, that was a sec kind of a secondary thing, but right. people's immediate need that, you know, their more innate need was, was, was to have somewhere to watch their children. And then also we saw a lot of backlash about, uh, you know, the food, the food services with the free uh, or reduced lunch system in the United States and people, you know, uh, cared more about getting the lunch services provided than the education that they were missing out on. And so that's not to say that that's the only benefit of the school system, but that's kind of what a lot of people have theorized about, you know, the school system is kind of like a daycare system. Um, and again, that's not the only benefit there, but that is a benefit. And, and, and look, you're seeing it in the calls to reopen as well. People are saying we need a place to, to watch our children. We need to get back to work. They are talking about the education stuff as well, but they're, it seems like they're more so highlighting uh, the, this benefit of daycare. But the other thing is we have certain areas of the country, and I will say that there are three school districts in Arizona that I know of already. I'm not sure of Oklahoma. I'll have to look into it. But South Pasadena, California is also doing this and other parts of the country, but they're actually reopening elementary schools and some middle schools, and they're calling it child care center they're calling them daycare centers child care centers yeah and this is the same time that the schools would have been open austin is doing this in texas as well and they're reopening the schools and they're charging families at least 160 dollars a week i've seen as yeah. high as 210 dollars per child per week and they're saying okay well we're going to reopen the schools we're going to give you the child care uh part of the service that we would have been giving you last year at the same time of the year. And, um, you know, we're not going to do the education part. We're not going to call it schooling, but if we call it childcare center, if you pay us twice, then we'll give you the, we'll reopen the schools. We're just going to call it something else. And so, I mean, it seems like the school systems are essentially double dipping, charging families twice, yeah. charging families to the property tax system and they're charging people out of pocket uh and and they're 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 providing the child care services but they're not calling it schooling and it seems like they're kind of profiting off off the backs of, of families right now and uh aclj has actually given uh a legal letter to uh these arizona school districts one in particular gilbert public schools um they're representing a family out there and arguing that it's unconstitutional for them to do this every state constitution that i know of in the united states has some provision about providing a free public education. And it's hard for them to say that one, if they're not reopening the schools, and it's obviously wrong for them to say that they're try to say that they're doing that if they're charging families out of pocket for doing so. Um, so I think in that legal letter that ACLJ sent to uh, the Gilbert Public School District in Arizona, they gave them until today to respond. So I think they're going to take legal action if the school district doesn't respond by today. So be on the look. I want to tell the listeners to be on the lookout for, yeah. for that today. I'll probably tweet about it after we get off once I find any updates from their executive director, Jordan Seculo. But look, um, 
even if the school districts aren't charging family, I, it's just ridiculous for them to be charging for something that's supposed to be free, that's already yeah. paid for the tax system. But it's also arguably unconstitutional for them to not um, allow families to use the school system by not reopening the schools. Because mm -hmm. each state, again, says that they need to provide, some states even go further and say that the school system needs to provide a free and adequate or thorough and efficient system of education. And if they're not doing that, families should get their money back. Families should get do school think, choice. Do you, we'll start to see, do you think we'll start to see these schools, like, I mean, we're hearing this to where they'll start school as normal, and then here comes, say, September, October, to where they're like, oh, COVID numbers are up, got to go back home. So, I mean, they do get their, they get their money because they started it, but they're going to have to go back home and go virtual. I mean, do you see that happening? Yeah, I mean, I, I, what I'm seeing more so is that they just don't want to open in the first place. I mean, look at D.C. Mm -hmm. That's another thing I forgot to, to mention. D.C.'s just announced a couple of days ago that D.C. Mayor uh, Muriel Bowser in a, um, I think it was maybe Friday, she, she announced this. They're not reopening until November 6th, which a lot of people, you know, saw that and they're just like, November 6th, why, why are you waiting until after the election? Just, just doesn't look good optics-wise. Um, and so when questioned about it, the mayor you know, kind of played dumb and said, I don't know why, why you're asking me this question, even though the reporter said, I'm asking you this question because people are going to see this and think that it's kind of a political you know, thing going on. I'm not going to question anybody's motives. I don't, I don't know why they picked that date. But it was just interesting for the mayor to act like she didn't know why the, the reporter was asking this, you know, and, and even though the reporter stated why the, the reporter was asking that. So it just weird, weird timing on their part. Um, they, they could have done it right before the election. It would have, it would have at least prevented some of that pushback on social sure. media and, and, and from the reporters in person as well. I'm glad the reporter asked, asked her about that, but look, they're waiting until November 6th and they're going all virtual until then. And they even said at least, at least November 6th. So they may reassess at November 6th and say, ah, oh, no, we're not going to open uh, until, you know, next year or something. Yeah. So, and look, I don't have problems with individual schools making that decision. I just want families to be able to take their money elsewhere. If, if the schools don't. Well, where can people find you on Twitter? Um, and I mean, obviously on Facebook, they can type in Corey DeAngelis, but on Twitter and- Yeah, same thing on Twitter, you can type in my name, but uh, my my handle is just my last name. It's, oh, it's actually right here. Right there, there it is. Yeah. At DeAngelis Corey, I try to make it easier just to, uh, yeah, so follow me there on Twitter. I, I uh, right it's when I get these the news on this stuff, I, I share it there before anywhere else. And um I think I'm one of the first people to to break a lot of these things. So, yeah. um, well, here's one I want to ask you. You knew I was going to bring this one up: the Tebow bill. Oh well, yes, that's a great idea. We've got. I mean, yeah, so, thirty some states have it. Um, I'm just going to be honest. There's a lot of people that that would homeschool that I know that would homeschool if it wasn't for the athletics. And they and so it's so like, okay, we don't want to go the public school route, but we need the athletics. Well, my kid wants to be a four time OSSAA state champ in wrestling, for example, right? The only way you can do that in Oklahoma. Is to, is, is to virtual school or go to a public school. Um, they brought yeah. they brought it many times to the to the floor, but it's never passed in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, I can tell you why. The 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 homeschoolers or the a large contingent of homeschoolers are saying, yeah, that'd be nice, but we don't want the government then 
having a, a way in of telling us how we're going to educate our kids. And, and, and that is a, they think that's a way in. And there's a larger portion of those people than there are homeschoolers who want to go yep. to the Debo bill. But I mean, you got 30 some States who have already passed it. And I think a lot of people do want to pass it, but if the money comes, I mean, if we're paying the money in, we should be able to utilize that part of the public schooling, I think, you know, yeah, so I just want to point out for the listeners, this came from Tim Tebow. I don't know if Florida was the first state to do this, but Tim Tebow, Tim Tebow was a, a homeschooler and he played sports, right, for the, for the local school district. So that's kind of the idea here. If uh, you're homeschooling, you should be able to take advantage of some of the services that you're paying for, for the proper, through the property taxes. And a lot of people forget that, that in the current system, without school choice at least, Families are paying through the property tax system for something that they're essentially not using at all. I would argue those families should be able to use 100% of the services if they want. Let's say the entire school system, if they want to send their children there and they are able to do so, do so already. Why not allow them to use a certain fraction of those services as well? Maybe, you know, let's say the extracurriculars come, come, come to be like 5% of the school system. Why can't a uh, homeschool family take advantage of some fraction of why do they have to jump in all all, all into a hundred percent of the services if mm -hmm. they're paying for a hundred percent of their property taxes they should be able to utilize fifty percent five percent of the services including the extracurriculars as well and i think this would be beneficial for the school districts too because then they can recruit additional talent from the homeschool community and so it could be a, a win-win and it could be a win for the society as well and that you'd have more competition with the, the football games or whatever sports that you're watching makes it more interesting for the society that's that's watching um, uh, the game. So I think it would be a win-win. And look, I think a better way to do this is to uh, have a school choice mechanism um, where the money goes into an education savings account and you can use that for club sports, for example, or you yeah. could use it even to pay your public school system and say, hey, look, you know, um, I'll give you 10% of my education savings account if you let me uh, participate in the sports system. And that way you can use the other 90% for the homeschooling expenses that are not tied to the, uh, the extracurriculars. And I think that's the best way to do it, just fund the student instead of the system. And I just have to point out before we get off this thing, because it's my go-to, uh, just like we do with the Pell Grants and food stamps, the money goes to the individual family and the family can use those dollars for a, a whole host of different providers of the service. We should do the same thing with education. Instead of giving the money to the government school system, uh, we don't we don't residentially assign people to uh, government-run grocery stores with food stamps and say that those families have to use the food stamps there. No, we give the money to the families and the families can pick Walmart, Whole, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, Harris Teeters. They can pick a whole bunch of different providers and we should do the same thing with education. And uh, we should do that with homeschooling as well. And to get to the argument about regulations, I do think that is a legitimate argument that we should be wary of the res uh, regulations that could come from these programs. But uh, I think in every individual family should be able to make that cost benefit decision for themselves. And if you see that the regulations outweigh the benefits of the additional dollars, well, then you can say, okay, I'm not going to take any of the, uh, the funding because I'm not okay with the strings that are attached. But right. at the same time, homeschool families that don't like that don't want those regulations for their own families shouldn't have the power to say oh well you shouldn't be able to take any of those dollars to homeschool your own children uh, i think most homeschoolers understand that um, families should be able to make their own decisions for their families so 
homeschoolers shouldn't, uh, you know, try to limit the options, particularly of lower income families who might be more likely to need the additional dollars, uh, regardless of the uh, regulatory environment. Associated. Yeah, well, the Tebow bill is an opt-in bill anyway. So uh, like you're saying, if you if you want to follow a certain criteria that they put in place, well, then you follow that. If not, well, then you just yeah. be homeless. Yeah, you don't, you don't have to do it. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I think that's the, the main selling point here is that just because a certain policy is passed, it doesn't mean it's applied to all homeschoolers. It's applied to whoever uh, uses the program. And it depends on what the bill looks like, right? It might not have a lot of strings attached. So what, you know, why, why, why not uh, be open to this idea when the reality is the alternative is much more regulated than uh, these programs. The, the government run school system that the child would otherwise be in is much more regulated than these education savings account programs. You know, there may be some, you know, um, type of nationally norm reference standardized test, but there may not be high stakes attached to it. There may not be a test requirement at all. It depends on the bill, but the government school system has obviously has a lot more regulations than, sure. uh, than these homeschooling funds. And again, you can turn it down if you want. You don't have to accept any of this funding. Um, and so I think that's why it's still a libertarian proposal. Uh, you know, one, it's voluntary. And then two, uh, yeah, it's voluntary for individual families. And um, also it's less regulated than the alternative, uh, which is the government school system. And if this gets, you know, on net, even if it is a regulated program, if this gets a lot of people into the homeschooling movement, this could also build political power for homeschoolers to defend against calls for regulations as well. Um, you know, homeschooling is a small segment of the population right now. And if you welcome more people into that population, you'll have more political power with a bigger voting block and, and people to fight against this consist because there already are consistent calls to regulate homeschooling. Oh, yeah. Having an education savings account program isn't going to change that, but it will benefit you and having more political power, ha having more people uh, affiliated with the groups that are defending on the legal side, including you know, HSLDA would probably have more members, for example, and more power to uh, prevent uh, uh, the the uh, enemies of homeschooling from from overregulating the practice. Well, you're from Texas. I, I know right now Texas, it is. I, I believe it's going to pass from what I hear. Uh, the Tebow bill. Um, they have enough. They have enough uh, support behind it. I think it's going to pass. You're, here's the other thing. We're talking about you know basically free choice. That if if it if it doesn't pass in Oklahoma. We're already exporting enough of our college graduates and our businesses and everything anyway to Texas. You're going to start seeing people if it passes in Texas and doesn't pass in Oklahoma, you'll start to see families move to Texas. I'll promise you. Yeah, yeah. I mean that makes sense, right? It's it's we're talking about the Tebow bill, T E B O W, and uh, you're kind of referring to Tebow competition, voting with your feet. T right. Spelled the same way, T I E B O U T. The economists from the 1950s who argued that localities compete uh, based on a bundle of goods and services provided by the government. And one of those things that you're referring to is the, the Tebow bill. So that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, people could vote with their feet and go to Texas, which um, want to be a good thing for Oklahoma. You're, you're right. Yeah. Well, you're getting a lot of, uh, I've just been watching, uh, I watch your tweets daily. So, but Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., um, Ben Shapiro. There's a lot of people that are retweeting your stuff. I mean, so it. There's no question. I mean, it's getting 
it's getting extremely popular uh, school of choice. Yeah, and I mean, um, people in the education freedom movement or the school choice kind of advocacy world have always known that families are getting screwed by the mm -hmm. school system because they don't have any power because the money goes to the building and it doesn't follow the child like it would in any other or a lot of other taxpayer funded initiatives like Pell Grant, like even with Pell Grants, that's education related. The money goes to the student and the student can pick a public university or a private university. Same thing with the GI Bill, same thing with pre-K programs. A lot of people who like pre-K programs and Pell Grants um, support vouchers for these initiatives because the families can choose public or private providers and the money goes and follows the child. But then they somehow, for whatever reason, oppose vouchers when it comes to the K through 12 system. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, it doesn't make any sense until you think about it for a little bit. And I, the way that I've kind of bridged this uh, apparent inconsistency in their logic is that in the K through 12 system, there's an entrenched special interest. There's a monopoly system that wants the system to stay as it is. Again, the money goes to the system regardless of the choice of the family. So you have a special interest when it comes to K through 12, fighting against allowing those dollars to follow the child elsewhere. Whereas in the higher education level, the norm is that the money already follows the child. Same thing with pre-K. People are paying out of pocket for the pre-K program. So allowing the money to follow the child doesn't harm a monopoly when it comes to right. pre-K and higher ed, but it does in the K through 12. So that's the only way that I've been able to bridge the difference in the logic between people who oppose choice for these levels, but then, um, or support choice for pre-K and higher ed, but then for some reason uh, oppose it when it comes to threatening the monopolies. And that's the only argument that can be made as to why there's this, this disconnect. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people are talking about it now because it's becoming clearer now more than ever that families are powerless when it comes to K through 12 education. I mean, the schools for a long time weren't properly educating children and families still had to pay for it and they couldn't vote with their feet and take their education dollars elsewhere. And a lot of us knew that already, but now the optics are even worse for the school system. And it, it really just highlights that families ha have been getting the short end of the stick uh, to put it lightly when it comes to K through 12 education because the schools aren't even opening now and they're having to do a lot of the work on their own in the household through this home-based education setup, either through homeschooling and the money staying with the school system. So families and, and politicians and everyone, Trump and his sons are seeing this. A lot of people are seeing this, that families, families are, are getting the short end of the stick. I'll just yeah. put it that way again, that they're doing a lot of the work and they're not getting the money. And when you start to think about these other kind of um, uh, uh, either taxpayer funded initiatives or just any other sector in the economy, all these other sectors are reopening and the schools are fighting really hard not to do so. And I think the reason for that is because the schools get your money, at least in the public school sector, the schools get your money regardless. And yeah. the private schools, they're having the government, they're having to fight against the government trying to keep them closed. On the other hand, in the public school sector, they're more so fighting to remain closed. They're not having to fight off the government to keep them from closing. Yeah. The private schools are wanting to reopen and serve their, their customers because they know they're going to shut down. With Walmart, for example, they have a strong incentive to reopen safely and effectively and in a timely manner because I can take my money to Trader Joe's or Whole Foods. With the school system, they have every incentive in the world to drag their feet. 
and it's because they get your money regardless. If we had school's choice in place, we'd have a different incentive structure in play. And I think we'd, we'd see schools coming up with really creative ways to structure micro schools at a micro level or you know, partner with other organizations um, to reopen schools safely and to have more of like a blended learning and a hybrid learning model instead of just a fully online model that we're seeing in far too many school systems yeah. today. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's why we're seeing so many uh, politicians and, and big names, at least on the conservative side, calling for the education dollars to follow the child to wherever they're getting an education. I mean, it just makes too much sense. If your school doesn't reopen, you should be able to take your child's education dollars elsewhere. Even if the school does reopen, you should be able to take your child's education sure. dollars elsewhere. But it's extreme. It's even more so obvious when the school's not reopening. Yeah. Well, hey, I want to definitely bring you back on here again. Um, I got a, another call coming up here pretty quick. Uh, again, you can follow Corey DeAngelis at, um, at DeAngelis Corey Twitter. You can look him up on Facebook. I've been wanting to have this um, let this interview for quite some time, and this is my first time to really use StreamYard. So it's a good platform, isn't it? It's an awesome platform. Yeah, I've, I was looking at it in another platform, and this is the one. Obviously, you're the one who just knocked me over the edge. I'm like, okay, we're going with, with StreamYard. So uh, I love it. It's a great platform. It pushes out to YouTube and Twitter and LinkedIn, Facebook. It's great. So I really do appreciate you coming on. Is there any uh, closing uh, things you want to talk about? I mean, I want people to follow you. Obviously. I mean, I've, I've reiterated uh, it enough on this call, but yeah. uh, look, we should fund the student instead of the system. The money yeah. should follow the child to wherever they're receiving education. If the school doesn't reopen. That's fine. No, no school should be forced to reopen. No teacher should be forced to return to work. Yeah. But no family should be forced to fund a school system that's not edu educating their children properly. If a Walmart doesn't reopen, you can take your food stamps elsewhere. You can take your uh, hard-earned money elsewhere. If your school doesn't reopen, you should similarly be able to take your children's education dollars elsewhere. That's the main point. That's the bottom line. And uh, look, again, similarly with teacher strikes, I don't mind a teacher strike, but at the same time, if you're striking for policies that families don't agree with, families should be able to take their money elsewhere. Yeah. If you're not educating the child, and if you're instead striking and not providing the service to the family, the family should be able, be, be able to continue sending money to the public school system, but they should also be able to, if they choose, take their education to a school system that is more adequately meeting the needs of, of, of their children. Yeah. educationally and, and otherwise. So that's the yeah, if you want, yeah. follow me on Twitter again. It's here at D'Angelo yeah. Corey, and I'm looking forward to being on the show again with you soon, Josh. Well, thank you, Corey. I appreciate it. I could talk about this all day long. I mean, it's right at my alley. So um, we'll have you on here again. Um, so you have a good rest of the day. And for everybody watching, thank you for uh, tuning into this. Cool. Thank you. Thank you.